0: Bernadette Greevy, accompanied by Rhoda Cockhill in a recording of Thomas Moore's Silent O'Moyle in an arrangement by Colonel Fritz Brazé. The very name of Fritz Brazé, or Fritz Brazé, as he was popularly known, will doubtless stir the memories of those listeners of more mature years. For Brazé was among the most active contributors to Irish musical life in the 1920s and 30s. Indeed, his energy and commitment did much to enliven a period which was not noted for its musical activity. His influence was felt throughout the country and especially in Dublin. Not popularly appreciated, perhaps, is his crucial role in the founding of the Dublin Philharmonic Society and in the development of music in the broadcasting service. But it is as first director of the Army School of Music and conductor of its number one band that he is best remembered. Braze had exceptional ability as a band trainer and conductor, and the speed with which he created and developed the number one band, bringing it to a standard comparable with the finest bands in these islands, earned him popular approbation, and his labours contributed to the restoration of national pride, which had been much undermined by the recent civil war. Happily, we have some testimony to the quality of the band's playing through the few recordings made by Braze between nineteen twenty four and nineteen thirty six. This is an early nineteen thirties HMV recording of Braze conducting the army number one band in his own arrangement, The Wearing of the Green. Wilhelm Fritz Brasse, heard there conducting his own arrangement, the wearing of the green with the Army number one band, was very much a child of his time, and his unique career was shaped by the exceptional age in which he lived. He was born on the fourth of may eighteen seventy five at the mill in the small North German town of Egestorf, near Hanover. From an early age he displayed a talent for music which his family encouraged. His musical studies began in the nearby town of Barsenkhausen and continued at Hanover. after which he enrolled in the renowned Leipzig Hochschule für Musik. During his three years at the Hochschule, Brase had the opportunity to study with some of the most eminent professors of the day, and he took his chance to broaden the range of his study. His professor for pianoforte was Karl Reinecke, the celebrated performer and teacher, who was also conductor of the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra and was later to become director of the Musikhochschule. Braze also studied violin with Hans Sitt and theory with Salomon Jadison. In October 1893, at the age of 18, he enlisted in the small garrison town of Buckeburg, some 30 kilometres from his home in Egerstorf. This was the mandatory first step in a progressive military structure for it was his intention to follow a career as a bandmaster. For a young man with such a distinguished musical training, the selection of a career within the military was not at all unusual. In the Kaiser's Germany, with its high respect for the military and its love of ceremony, a successful bandmaster could enjoy a comfortable lifestyle while also holding a high social position. For an ambitious young musician, such practical considerations were supported by the professional opportunities offered by the service. Many military bands were allied to either military or court orchestras, and Brase was quickly honoured by being accepted as a violinist in the Fürstlicher Hofkapelle, the Royal Court Orchestra. This ensemble was conducted by the Hofkapellmeister, Professor Richard Sala, who did much to encourage Braze's interests in the areas of composition arranging and conducting his earliest compositions were written in Bucheberg and were performed by the court orchestra with Braze conducting some of these works were brought to the attention of the illustrious violinist Josef Joachim who was evidently impressed, for Joachim, in his capacity as director of the Staatliche Akademische Hochschule für Musik in Berlin, invited Braze to pursue further study without having to undergo the entrance examination. He commenced his studies in Berlin in October 1902. During this period, he completed many large-scale compositions, both for military band and for orchestra. These were performed by the Fürstliche Hofkapelle in Bucheburg, often under the direction of Braze himself. Included among these works were suites, overtures and a symphony in D major, his only exercise in this form. His creative gift was recognised when, at the end of his course, he received the singular honour of being invited to remain a further year in the Hochschule as the first military member of the exclusive master class for composition under the guidance of Dr Max Bruch. Such a distinction indicated that Brase was among the most promising young musicians of his day, and it presaged a fine career. Success in open competition for original composition won further professional recognition for Brase. In 1910, his march, Excellence von Bernhardi, was adjudged the finest entry in the military band class of a competition organised by the Berlin publishing firm of Albert Stahl, The competition aroused so much interest that the army decided to arrange its own contest in the following year in conjunction with the publishing house of August Schell, also of Berlin. The competition was publicised internationally and large financial awards were offered to successful composers in the various categories. What distinguished this competition from its predecessor was that it was commissioned in order to find new marches from the army there was the enticement that the winning marches would enjoy a place in the standard repertoire of military bands throughout the empire. The contest attracted 3,791 entries and once again Braze was successful, on this occasion with his presentation march, Große Zeit Neue Zeit. It is not typical of Braze's march style in that it is largely homophonic and restricted to modest harmonic progressions. The pace of harmonic change is correspondingly sedate, which allows for florid writing in the upper parts. A rhythmic vitality ensures that it never becomes laboured despite its leisurely gait. It demands a large and able brass section, and there are some taxing, albeit thrilling, high passages for trumpets. In this recording, it is played by the band of the Curragh Command with myself conducting. <laughs> That was Fritz Braze's presentation march, Grosse Zeit, Zeit, played by the band of the Command. Its triumphant nature suggests much about Braze's sympathy with the dominant Prussian spirit of the age. To this day, the work remains in the standard march repertoire of German military bands. Braze's early career fulfilled the promise of his student days. His first posting as bandmaster came in April 1906, when he was appointed conductor of the Infantry Regiment 13, Hervat von Bittenfeld in Münster. He remained with the band for three years, during which time he became the youngest recipient of the title Königlichen Musikdirektor, Royal Music Director, a prestigious honorary civilian title in the gift of the Royal Prussian Academy of Arts. He served a further two years in Danzig, modern-day Gdańsk, before being appointed conductor of one of the finest military bands in the empire, the Kaiser Alexander Guard Grenadier Regiment I. This Berlin-based ensemble was popularly thought of as the Kaiser's own band and was employed for major state ceremonial occasions. Thus did Brase, at the age of 36, assume one of the most coveted positions in German military music and in the spring of the same year, 1911, professional success was complemented by personal fulfilment when he married Elsie Conrads. In the following year, a son, Theo, was born to the couple. These were happy times for Braze and his young family. He was an established figure whose compositions were much in demand, being regularly published by various firms in Berlin and Hanover. However, the First World War changed the whole nature and structure of German military music and proved devastating in its effects on Braze's career. He continued to serve throughout the conflict and conducted his last Mast Bands concert in Berlin in December 1917 before a distinguished audience which included the Kaiser, Field Marshal von Hindenburg, General Ludendorff and other members of the Imperial General Staff. In 1918 he was transferred to Riga to take charge of the German theatre there a post held by Braze's idol, Wagner, some 80 years earlier. However, a German retreat in the east forced Braze to return to Berlin in early 1919, and the general military retrenchment forced his resignation from the army in April of the same year. Throughout the period of the war, he had continued to compose. Much for military band, but also chamber music, including a set of three songs for mezzo-soprano with texts by the German poetess Anna Ritter. Dedicated to his wife Elsie, these subjective miniatures from 1916 are among his most accomplished and attractive works. The first song, for Heysunk, Promise, in E major, is the longest and most challenging of the group. The intensity of his text is reflected in wide tonal shifts. This we will hear later. The second song, entitled Pythia, is in A-flat major, while the final piece, in G major, is glaube Lieber Schatz. They are sung here by Bernadette Grevey, accompanied by Rhoda Coghill, in a recording produced by Dermot O'Hara very shortly before he died in 1979.
1: i sure. yeah.
0: Bernadette Grievy, accompanied by Rhoda Coghill singing Braze's Pythia and Ich glaub lieber Schatz. The piecemeal nature of Fritz Braze's employment record between 1919 and 1922 reflects the political and economic difficulties of post war Germany. There was little demand for men of his calling and experience and little prospect of improvement. The personal misery was compounded in January 1919 when his son, Theo, just seven years old, died of pneumonia. It was at this lowest point in Braze's personal and professional life that circumstances contrived to bring him to Ireland. The history of the Irish government's decision to establish a music corps within the army is sufficiently detailed and indeed fascinating to require a programme of its own. In brief, the prime mover was General Richard Mulcahy, the Minister for Defence and Chief of Staff of the Young Irish Army. He was a visionary who was conscious of the paucity of musical opportunity in the young state. He believed that the army could be employed as a works of public service, to use his own term, supplying services and skills required by the community. This was very much in keeping with the ideas enunciated by George Russell in his 1916 publication, The National Being. Mulcahy envisaged a music service within the army which would not be limited to providing bands for the military but rather act as a centre for national musical resurgence. In formulating the design of the project, Mulcahy sought the advice of John F. Larche, Professor of Music at University College Dublin. Larche responded with characteristic generosity and his detailed proposals advocated the creation of an army school of music. He also recommended the engagement of an experienced foreign bandmaster to establish and guide the project through its formative years. The appointment of a foreign musician was regarded as a temporary expediency, for both proponents of the scheme were conscious of the hostility such an appointment could evoke in a newly independent state, anxious to proclaim its distinctive cultural identity. Such thinking is perceptible behind Larcher's advocacy of a French method of teaching.
2: Heretofore, the system of teaching music in our land has been dull and uninteresting, English in the extreme, and in every way unsuited to the temperament of our people. The Irish attitude towards music is somewhat akin to that of the French people, The theoretical system of study here advocated is largely based on the French method.
0: Indeed, Larche proposed the engagement of a French musician, but the French government felt unable to oblige. Germany appeared to offer a better chance of success. The Treaty of Versailles, which had severely restricted the German army, imposing on it a ceiling of 100,000 men, resulted in the redundancy of many military musicians. The scale of the reduction was from 15,700 musicians in 1914 to just 3,600 in 1919. The approach to the relevant German authority was made on behalf of the Irish government by Dennis McCullough. He frequently travelled to the continent in connection with his music business in Dublin. On one such visit in autumn 1922, he approached Professor Theodore Gravert, the Heres the holder of the highest position in German military music, who proposed Fritz Braze for the position. After an initial visit to discuss terms of employment, Braze accepted the position and arrived in Ireland on the 1st of March 1923. One of the conditions which Braze had set was that he be allowed an assistant, and so he was joined on that day by another talented German bandmaster, Friedrich Christian Sautzweig. Through the spring and summer, the two laboured in the Kurra to train the first of what was intended as a series of military bands for the army. It proved an arduous task. We have an insight into the experience through the recollections of Sarzweig. With his distinctive humour, he recalls details of the daily programme.
2: From 9am until 12 noon and from 2 to 4.30pm was practice. The men did not appear to be used to so many hours, for one morning they asked for an interval. What you want an interval for? asked the director. Just for a little smoke, said one of the men. We used to have a break for this purpose when we were with the battalion. Here now, was the director's retort. Don't you ruin your health with smoking, but as soon as you are first-class band, maybe I give you an interval now and again, but not... For smoking, Manchu.
0: This account dates from some years after the event and illustrates Sartzweig's growing command of the language. Initially, though, neither he nor Braze had any English, and this is reflected in Braze's designation, Number One Band. The name found public favour and remains to this day. The sheer volume of work tackled by Braze in this initial few months is astounding. His primary task was to set a foundation for a distinctive Irish band tradition. To this end, along with recruiting, establishing and training the band, he also spent time collecting Irish folk songs and employing them in arrangements for the medium. Furthermore, he set about writing a set of marches for the army. One of the first of these was appropriately dedicated and named after the instigator of the project, General Mulcahy, and was given its first performance in Gough Barracks Now, MacDonough Barracks, on the Curra, on Sunday, the 9th of September 1923. There is nothing peculiarly Irish about the piece. It is, in fact, compatible both in form and content with his earlier marches. Nonetheless, it secured public acclaim. Here it is, played by the Army No. 1 band conducted by the composer. The General Mulcahy March, there played by the Army Number no. One Band, was the first piece played at the Number no. One Band's inaugural Dublin concert in the Theatre Royal on the fourteenth of October, nineteen twenty-three. The remainder of the band program consisted of transcriptions of pieces by Wagner and Liszt, and compositions and arrangements by Braze. The concert was fully subscribed, and the critics were unanimous in their approbation. Typical was the comment of the following morning's Freeman's
2: Journal. Last evening's performance in the Theatre Royal will go down in the annals of Irish music and in the history, one ventures to think of the Irish people. It was the first public performance of an Irish band drawn from the ranks of Ireland's First National Army. Never for a moment did last evening's audience seem to lose sight of that fact. Their enthusiasm was unbounded, and rightly so.
0: Further performances quickly followed and were received with even greater enthusiasm. Braze and his number one band acquired something akin to celebrity status, their achievements being regarded as evidence of the possibilities offered by the young state. Never previously had a band excited such interest. Ireland had a proud band tradition and some fine civilian bands, such as St James's and Ireland's own, had contributed much to Irish musical life but they had followed the British tradition employing its high pitch and performing the lighter style of music associated with the medium. Furthermore, the country had no permanent symphony orchestra and enjoyed only occasional visits from visiting British orchestras. Because of this, the number 1 band became something of a surrogate orchestra, which doubtless explains the ready acceptance of the different programmes presented by Braze. Nor did he make concessions to popular trends when playing in the open. In July 1924, the band played its first free recital before its largest ever audience, estimated by the Sunday Independent to exceed 30,000, in the Hollow in Phoenix Park. The calibre of music chosen was similar both in composition and duration to that presented for indoor recitals. It included the ever-present Wagner, Wallace, Larche and works by Braze. Again, the band was enthusiastically received. It is not surprising, therefore, to find that one of the earliest recordings made by Brassé and the Army Number no. 1 band was of a classical transcription. The opening of the overture to the Magic Flute by Mozart will again give evidence of the quality of playing achieved in the band's first year. army number one band conducted by Fritz Braze in a 1924 recording of the overture to the Magic Flute by Mozart. The aspect of the band's early performances which excited most attention was its adoption of low pitch. Both the Minister for Defence, General Mulcahy, and his musical advisor, Professor Larche, were determined from the outset to avoid the high cost of changing from the older high pitch to lower pitched instruments. Continental armies had been facing up to this change and its consequent costs since the mid-19th century. Indeed, financial considerations delayed until 1927, the adoption of lower pitch by the British military bands. The higher pitch, known in these islands as Old Philharmonic Pitch, was set with A equaling 452.4 vibrations per second. The name derives from the Philharmonic Society in London, which standardised its pitch at this level when under the direction of Sir Michael Costa between 1848 and 1854. This survived until a lower pitch, with A at 439 vibrations, was adopted for the first series of Queen's Hall promenade concerts in 1895, and this gained wide acceptance in Britain and was given the name New Philharmonic Pitch. A similar trend towards lower pitch was evident on the continent and both German and French military bands moved towards the diapason Normale with 435 vibrations which a French commission had set as standard in 1859. It is interesting to note that there are still many high-pitched wind instruments extant and indeed up to as recently as 25 years ago one could hear complete bands employing the old pitch in rural Ireland. Joseph Grucco, in his General Survey of Music in the Republic of Ireland, published in 1961, chronicles
2: this problem with some humour. There is as yet no standardisation of pitch. Some bands play at high pitch, others at low pitch. It has been cynically remarked that some bands try to combine both high and low pitch, the lack of an agreed standard of pitch in Ireland makes it impossible to contemplate any large-scale festivals of massed bands. I know of two bands in towns about 15 miles apart where, because of difference in pitch, it is impossible for players of one band to help the other in times of shortage, much as they might like to be able to do so.
0: Widely recognised, too, was Brasier's conducting ability. Musicians who worked with him all affirm his eminence as a conductor. His strong personality and imposing mien were fundamental assets. Additionally, he possessed a prodigious musical memory. His assured technique was unencumbered by any inclination towards splashy display. His primary concern was to serve the music by which he was truly, in Leinsdorf's phrase, the composer's advocate. In performance, he eschewed the use of all extraneous material, including rostrum, score and baton. His command earned him the respect of players and listeners alike. It also drew praise from the critics. Typical is the following from the Freeman's Journal.
2: Colonel Braz's principal attraction lies, as with all the great conductors, in his electric personality. Following the lead of Savonov and Kusevichky, He dispenses with the baton. His movements are restrained, but they are full of significance. His chief aversion seems, and we are glad of it, to be sentimentality. That one feels he will countenance in no circumstances whatsoever.
0: A third source of comment for critical observers of the early years of the Army School of Music was Brazia's facility as a composer and arranger. His concentration during his earliest years in Ireland was naturally on works for military band, but he did not neglect other genres. He had been compelled, by economic necessity, to write a large volume of salon music during the difficult years between 1919 and 1922. In subsequent years he continued to supply such pieces to his German publishers, although in much reduced quantity. One such piece was a little serenade in E major for piano, which was completed in 1925. Originally entitled Serenata, Brase instructed the publisher, Bernbach in Berlin, to alter the title to Little Moira, following the birth of a daughter, Mona, to whom he dedicated the piece. It is consistent in construction with his earlier works – but its light and joyous melody with its decorations, gap scale and attraction to the submediant suggests an affinity with Irish folk music. Little Mora a serenade by Fritz Braze, played by Rhoda Cockhill. Joining me now is the dedicatee, Miss Mona Brasse. Mona, you're very welcome. You were 16 years of age when your father died. What are your memories of him um, as a
3: father? As a father, well, I didn't know him all that long, and I don't think I ever realised, well, just what personality he was. I, was. I wasn't even there when he died. In nineteen forty I was in Germany, but as a father, I do know i know i've heard stories of him that he's very uh strict and severe outside of the home and that his his exploits in the army and his well the way he used to uh, uh talk about his and give out to his um soldiers and that about yes. wearing the uniform mm. this kind of thing, but at home he was the the gentlest and most docile of men. Mm. He was marvelous as a father. My main my main memories of him are in the evening sitting in front of the at the fireside and he'd his piano was always beside the fireplace, well, near it anyway. And he'd sit there with another table and he'd he'd, he'd, he'd compose. It was just his composing kind of at home, by the fireside, and he'd turn to the keyboard and he'd play a few notes and then he'd turn back to his... And this was with the family around? Yes, yes, Mm. I was there, I know, and my mother was there, yes, yeah. Yeah. And then I also remember him, he loved westerns, and I know my my mother used to tell me, well, the ODS used to have to get in special westerns (laughs) to keep my father happy. (laughs) And that's th- that is another picture of him that I remember sitting by the fireside, my mother on one side, my father on the other, both with their books, my father with his westerns. Yes. Yeah.
0: Your father's position obviously meant that you moved house on a number of occasions. Can you remember any of the yes, locations?
3: Yes, yes. Our first location was in Vegas Bush Barracks, mm-hmm. after the curry in Beggars Bush. And from there we moved to McKee Barracks. I remember we had a very small house, in Mickey barracks, My mother always used to say it was like a doll's house. Mm. It was very small
0: that was just inside the gate it was in the key, wasn't when it? you
3: went up the drive from from the gate and then to the left, there's a little house standing by itself, as I remember it yes I don't know it's i it was very mm. very young, and from there we moved to the Royal hospital in Kilmainham. The big house there is you'd go up the driveway from the king's bridge end of of, of it. Uh, the house there, to the right. That's
0: opposite what's now called Obsid- the edge adju- yeah, general's right. house. Yes,
3: yes, yes, we lived there. Must have been about for four years, I'd say, from nineteen thirty
0: 1930 to nineteen thirty-four. Yes. And then you moved
3: to your and own. And then home. we, yes, then we moved mm. to Sandy Mount.
0: And you were born. My, my parents
3: bought their first house after that. Yes. Sandy Mount, and then.
0: You were actually born, Mona, in the curry. I was born in the curry. Yes. Yeah. Yes. In what was called Stuart's House. House. Yes. 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 And that still stands. That's now yes. taken over by the 3rd Battalion.
3: Yes. I have photographs of that house, actually. Yes. Yeah. My parents standing in front.
0: Yes. Holding you yeah. as a child. Holding me as a child, mm. yes. Yes. You were a pupil at the, the Reed School of Music and were, I gather, an accomplished young pianist. What do you recall well, of music maybe. then in the home and your father's taste in music?
3: My father's taste was mainly Wagner mm. and I can understand now why, because all the, the old programs that i 've seen of his of his army concerts in the hollow they were all they all included a Wagner that 's right, and i've become a Wagner enthusiast as well, but music in the home, yes, um, well, my mother did all the well i ah yes, I learned the piano, and my mother did all the rehearsing with me and all the practice. My father never practiced with me. Yes. So. She had all the, the hard work sitting beside me and correcting me. And, did and he and play much himself at home? Yes, he did, a fair amount. Yes, mm. yes, yes. I think actually Little Mora uh, was composed because when I was very small, I think I liked to dance. And when my father used to play a piece, kind of, I would, you know to a few steps beside it. And I was actually sent to Miss Katz Dancing School for a few years, but my mother said afterwards, nothing ever really came of <laughs> it. When I was sent to the dancing school, well, my interest waned. Yes. And that was that.
0: As a young girl, Mona, were you conscious of your parents' past in Germany and of your father's excellent career there?
3: No, no.
0: Did you no. talk of those days at all?
3: Well, I was so young, Joe, that I never really... At that age, you don't really query things like that. You just take everything, you just take every day for granted and Mm. you don't query the past. I wish now that I had asked more questions.
0: And you weren't conscious of any longing on his part for the past or for memories of past days? No,
3: not that I know of. Mm. No, no.
0: What about your parents' social life, Mona, in Dublin? Did they have a busy social life? And can you remember personalities coming to the house?
3: Uh, I do remember, yes. Um, we had, there was this pianist, Willem Bachhaus and my parents had him in mm. when he was over in Dublin. I don't know what year that was, but I've been told I sat on his knee. <laughs> That's my only memory of that. <laughs> and then we used to have dinner parties. My father used to have to, uh, anyone that came over from the continent, any of the... Uh, uh, personalities or virtuosos my father, my parents always entertained them and what What about
0: personalities from the Dublin musical scene um, friends from the ODS or from the army indeed or Professor Larche, can you remember personalities such as those in the house?
3: Yes, yes mm. well I was in school with Dr Larche's daughters yes. I know Sheila Moore very well so I mean that would have yes I do remember him
0: yeah your father's reputation, won and experience have assured him an excellent, would have assured him an excellent post in Germany had he chosen to return. We have his own evidence that he refused these offers. Can you suggest any reasons why he chose to remain in Ireland?
3: He loved Ireland. Mm. He just loved it. Yeah. He was happy here. And he had made a very good niche for himself here too, hadn't he? Yes, he
0: had. You have close contact still with your father's own hometown in Eggestorf. Yes. Um, Yes. Are his achievements and reputation still honoured there?
3: Oh, they're very proud of him. Yes, Mm. yes, they are. There was a place. There's a town called Munster in Westphalia, and they named two, no, one street after him, and or uh, a small. It's only a small street in a housing estate called Braseweg, Mm. no, Brase Braseweg way. Yeah.